Welcome to the Souls Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soulischurch.com. All right, so we are in Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak in regard to need, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well, well that you have shared in my distress. Now you, Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, and I, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Um, good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody. How's everybody doing? You don't have to say great if you're not. It's okay, right? It's like, ah, great if we're not. Like, what do you do in that situation? But regardless, there is a reason to rejoice today as we come together to celebrate Jesus and Uh, enjoy um, what we get to do here on Sunday morning each and every week, uh, gathering around him and hearing from him. And so I want to welcome everyone, especially uh, those of you who are joining us for the first time. I saw some new faces, so welcome. Thanks for hanging out. Uh, A little quick uh, sneak peek of what you'll get at Welcome to Solace. So I'll just say this, Solace Church, uh, we are um, a community following Jesus here in Boca. Uh, We've been doing so for about three and a half years. Uh, If you count sort of our early stages, we officially opened our church for Sunday morning services three years ago on Easter Sunday. And since then, we have been passionate about pursuing one central thing, and that is Jesus at the center of our lives, Jesus at the center of our church, and Jesus at the center of our world and our community. And so, um, yeah, we'd love to invite you to come join us for that class to get a little bit more info, find out more about our heartbeat and what it looks like to get involved. Uh, And this morning, as we are in the book of Philippians, this is one of the ways that we are doing just that, seeking Jesus at the center by opening our ears and our hearts to his word. And so, uh, this is... It's our second to last study here in Philippians. For the past uh, almost four months, we have been embarking on a a journey through this book entitled Extraordinary. The book of Philippians is in the New Testament. It was written by the great apostle Paul. Uh, He authors this, this book, and it's a letter that he wrote to a church that he himself planted 10 or 12 or so years prior to him writing this letter. Paul plants this church, and then 10 years later, he's writing to them. Uh, We're going to talk in a minute about some of the reasons for that. Uh, But he's writing to them from, most importantly, a prison cell. This is uh, important context for this book. Paul has been imprisoned in Rome for being an enemy of the state. He is contradicting the gospel of the age. The gospel in that day and age, every age has their own gospel. Our culture has many of them, false gospels. 
And in Rome at that time, the gospel was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And to serve and live and worship him is our life purpose. And it was to that message and in that culture that Paul came on the scene and unashamedly said, no, Jesus is Lord. Uh, Caesar's kingdom is actually just a parody to what God's kingdom is the reality. And uh, the Lord of the universe is not some human sitting on some throne in Rome. It is Jesus, the crucified and risen king. And so Paul was boldly proclaiming this message. It got him into some trouble. That's pretty much like Paul's story, preaching Jesus and getting into trouble. Life well lived, I'd say. Um, And he's writing this letter from the prison cell to this church, expressing a lot of his heart, encouraging them um, with his words and with his life to live an extraordinary life. And so this is kind of the umbrella under which we're studying this book, this thesis, this idea that what God has on offer for you and me is a life that is lived beyond the limits of the ordinary life, a life that is not bound by circumstance, a life that's not bound by what's going on around me at all, but a life that is free and is determined and abundant uh, through Jesus. And so we get a whole lot of that in the passage that we just read this morning. If you didn't notice, in Philippians chapter 4, the passage that we're in, you have one of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible, probably like the most lifed life verse. We all have a, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but most of us have a life verse, like a verse that kind of is like our, our stamp on our life. And Philippians 4.13 is one of those. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's three Bible verses. This is how popular this verse is, okay? There's three Bible verses in the Bible that I can say in Spanish. And Filipenses cuatro trece is one of them, okay? That's all I'll give you, all right? You want to hear it in Spanish? Okay, todo lo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece, all right? So, yeah, from all my youth missions trips to Latin America, I learned uh, Genesis 1-1, God created the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we can do all things through him. So it's that popular that Andrew knows it in Spanish. But one of the missions that we've had in studying a book like Philippians is to place these propped out verses back into their proper context. And to really see what was Paul meaning and intended to, tending to say with something like, I can do all things through Christ. Which I thought, I've been kind of saying this throughout the week, uh, or throughout the series, that Philippians is like the most coffee-mugged book of the Bible, meaning there's more verses on coffee mugs and bumper stickers and Instagram bios uh, in Philippians, I think, than any other. And I thought it was so ironic because I found this picture, which I thought was kind of funny. It's a coffee mug that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) And so... With uh, the Holy Spirit as our guide, I shall uh, ask him to help us understand all that these verses are meant to mean in their proper context. A little bit of joking, but now we'll, we'll get into it. So uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 19, we're going to walk back through all of these verses. Before we do, uh, allow me to pray, and then we will uh, get into our study. Heavenly Father, though we um, joke this morning a bit about how your word um, can be misunderstood and, and how we can have some, obviously, some fun here, Lord. What, what we're reminded about this morning is that your word is a gift, Lord. 
Thank you, God, for the gift of your word. God, thank you that this morning we're not left on our own, trying to figure life out, trying to discover who you are with our own abilities, but we have your revelation, your unveiling. We have your truth right before us. More so, we have your Holy Spirit here to take what you've said and bring it to bear on our lives. And and God, that's why we're here. We're not here just for information. We're here for formation, for spiritual formation, God, for you to, with your word, by your spirit, to make us more into who you're calling us to be. And so with that, we invite your Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would fill me, you'd fill this place, and that, God, you would speak to us. That's our prayer. Our hope is in you. God, I've prepared a message today, but now I I look to trust in what you're going to do in this time. So we give it to you. We ask you to speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are a note taker, if you'd like to take notes, just kind of also as a main theme for where we're headed, the title of the message this morning is simply Navigating Needs. Navigating Needs. In this section of scripture, that's sort of the theme that we see the Apostle Paul harping on, whether it's talking about his own needs that have been provided for, or just being a generous person that cares for the needs of others, or there in verse 19, trusting that his God would supply all of your need according to his riches. This is a passage about navigating needs. This is the context of Philippians 4.13. And so with that, let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time that you felt or you were truly in need? Truly in need. Now, this is tricky for us as Americans, isn't it? Truly in need. Um, Well, as Those with first world problems, one of the biggest difficulty with being truly in need is often the things that we need are really just things that we what? Want. Um, You know, and as a parent with with three little kids, Judah now about to turn eight, he's got his piggy bank, he's learning about money, how to steward it, how to spend it wisely. And uh, just the other day, it was a whole dialogue about, um, and we try to give him some freedom in it, so it's like if he wants us to to buy him something... um, and he'll say, you know, mom and dad, I'll pay, I'll pay it out of my piggy bank. And he has the freedom to do that. But we'll caution him and just go, Judah, you know, what else could you buy with that? Do you really need this? Or do you just want this? And so that kind of condition of an eight-year-old is uh, also relevant to our lives today. So many of the things that I think I need are really just things that I want, whether it's a new couch. Man, I need a new couch. We actually went through this last year. We need a new couch. Do you? Or do you want a better one, right? I need a new phone. Why? Because a new one just came out, and I need that new phone. Or whatever it may be, I need a new husband. You know, fill in the blank. (laughs) Maybe true. But you may want it, right? It may just be what you want, right? This is this wrestle that we face in life, um, trying to navigate our needs. As trivial as that might sound, and as trivial as even our needs could be in America, forgetting something, not having what I need, I would guess that we have all, despite that, been in a situation like this before. And maybe it's going to have to take some recollection. But uh, being in need, meaning uh, you're lacking the necessary or essential resources for any given situation. 
And I mean truly in need. Maybe you're lacking the ability to pay off a loan. You're in need. You're lacking the resources to make ends meet, to pay your bills, or, or, or simply just to get by. When was the last time you were truly in need? Well, well here in, in the book of Philippians, and especially the passage that we're looking at, Paul is describing a situation in his life when he was truly in need. Not in a trivial way, not in just like an American way, but Paul, remember, he's in prison. And the prison system back then wasn't loaded with all of the novelties and amenities that uh, our, our American system has with all sorts of things, three meals a day and, and outdoor time and all that good stuff. Uh, in Paul's prison, the only hope of him having a meal is if there were some scraps left over or if a good friend or a family member would bring them what they Needed. And we get the inclination here that Paul is at the point of having nothing in jail. He's in prison for his faith. It's, it's dark. It's cold. He's hungry. I think of another point in his life at another time in prison. He, he invites um, Timothy. He's like, hey, bring me a blanket. That's what he needed. He was like without even the necessary um, things of life. And it was in that situation, it was in Paul's time of need that the Philippian church came to his aid. Remember, uh, possibly you remember back to chapter 2 where, where Paul is commending a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a representative of the church of Philippi, a leader in the church who was sent all the way 800 miles from Philippi to Rome where Paul was to bring him aid. Uh, we don't know exactly what kind of a gift it was. It was likely money, food, and maybe clothing. Uh, but this is a church that, we've talked about this, is really near and dear to Paul's heart. Uh, Paul pastors many different churches, writes to many of them. But it's the, the church of Philippi that Paul calls his joy and his crown. And it's likely because of the care that they brought to him when he needed it most. I wonder if you've been in a situation like that. Have you ever been bailed out by a good friend, a good family member, a relative, um, it's, a, it's sometimes a tough situation to be in, right? It's like, how do I repay you? How, how do I say thank you, right? Like, what do I do in this situation? You're just so grateful to the point beyond words. Uh, I think of a time in Brittany and I's life. This is about 10 years ago. We were about a year or so into youth ministry life, uh, leading a high school ministry. And uh, just prior to us getting married and getting into high school ministry, um, we got married and my mom passed away all in the same three-month period. And though we were able to have an incredible celebration, my mom was a big part of our honeymoon planning. And she was having a lot of fun uh, you know, planning that out for us. And so um, when she passed away, that planning process was really incomplete. And so it was, you know, it was, it was tough. It, it was tough to do that without her. So we just kind of settled for something more simple, like a simple honeymoon. And we always said, you know, if God opens the door, we'll do kind of like our dream honeymoon, which was Italy. We'll do that. We're, you know, we're trying to be biblical like Paul. We want to go to Rome. And so we were, we'll say, we'll, we'll do that in God's own timing if that's a door he opens up. Well, um, a couple years into marriage and into youth ministry, we just began to pray and plan for this trip. We got everything together. We had some, uh, some help from a travel agent, and we had this whole plan lined up. And, and we just kind of, we just were like moving towards it. Um, but, you know, youth ministry. You know, I'm a youth pastor. I'm not exactly on the Forbes 100 list. And so 
you know, we're, we're just kind of trusting God, doing our best to get, uh, to get by. It was, all, it was a time, I remember, too, as we're planning to go on this trip where we had just recently, like, become homeowners and in the process of, of life there. And our, our refrigerator, I remember, broke, our dishwasher. We got in a car accident. Uh, it was like a bad country song, you know. Um, broken fridge, <laughs> busted car. Help me, Dave Ramsey, you know. And so... And that was genuinely us. Like anything Dave Ramsey had, we're like, we were like eating it up. Like how do we, how do we get out of this situation? Um, but also such a desire to, to do this trip. And out of nowhere, there was a family that had heard that Italy was on our horizon. And, and a family out of nowhere came alongside and said, hey, it's been on our heart. We've been praying. God told us to gift you the resources that you need to go on this trip. And so we got to go on a little delayed honeymoon two years in. Um, and it was a lot of redemption in that. That uh, was my, one of my mom's favorite places. And so, but I remember being in that situation where you're like, what do you say, right? Like, have you been there? Have any struggle with that? Where you're just like, you, you, you're like, you don't want to talk too much because you don't want to say anything stupid. But you also don't want to say nothing because you don't want to come off as ungrateful. Anybody been there? Just me? Anybody else struggle with the anxiety of how to say thank you? Okay, good. Some of you. Well, a great place to start is where Paul does to this church, which is simply to uh, express his appreciation. I mean, two words, thank you, <laughs> thank you. It means a lot. That, that's where Paul is coming from in this passage. In fact, let's look at verse 10 as Paul expresses his gratitude for them meeting his need. He says in Philippians 4.10, he says, but I rejoice in the Lord. Now remember, Paul's in prison. But Paul has a reason in prison to rejoice because of their generosity. So even in a jail cell, Paul is having, the Greek there is, a great celebration in the Lord in prison. He's having a fiesta in prison. Why? He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. This is a really beautiful way for Paul to say thank you. Uh, and the language he uses is really beautiful. He says, your care for me or your, your, your blessing towards me, he says it has flourished again. This is a botanical word, a botanical metaphor that describes a flower budding in springtime. Uh, Paul is describing his situation. Maybe you've been there, and it's, and it's been a cold, dark winter. And as soon as Epaphroditus came with that door swinging open, it's like the beautiful, bright, and sunny spring has begun to Sprung, I guess, right? But it's begun to shine. And Paul is like, this is what your generosity has meant to me, like a bouquet of flowers on a dark day. Your care for me has flourished again. The word uh, communicates this idea of revival again. You know, sometimes our simple act of generosity could bring uh, revival of spirit to someone else. We, we never know what our, our generosity, what God can do with it. For someone who, who it might seem on the outside like they're doing okay, they may be in a dark winter. And just coming alongside of them like the way Paul did here, it, it's like bringing spring to someone's winter. Such a beautiful picture there. And, and Paul says this about them. He says, it's flourished. It's been even your generosity. It hasn't been there. And Paul said, it's not because you didn't care. I love that. He's like, the reason why it's taken so long to provide for me is not because you didn't care, but because you lacked opportunity. Now, we don't know really what the, what the limitation was uh, for this church and, and them being prevented from helping Paul sooner. I mean, we could speculate a ton of things. It's not like they could just wire some funds, you know, from Philippi into Paul's account. Like, I got you, bro. All right, I'm going to zell you, homie. All right? That, that wasn't an option. There was no Philippian cash app. And so Paul 
He's he's 800 miles away. You're sacrificing life. I should rather say you're risking life. You're flirting with death to come alongside him, bring him the care he needs. You're coming alongside him and uniting with him as someone who says Jesus is Lord. And so there were a lot of reasons why there may have been a lack of opportunity. It could have been um, circumstantial. It could have been financial. They just didn't have the resource. But I love that Paul says, what a great place to be at in life. Like the, the only thing keeping you from helping people is just opportunity. You see, most people, I think in our culture, we have it backwards. The issue isn't that we care. We just lack opportunity. But for a lot of us, if we're honest, maybe we have plenty of opportunity. But we just lack the care that matches the heart of God to come alongside someone. I mean, what an awesome thing for someone to say. This is Paul to the Philippians. Your issue wasn't that you didn't care. You, you, were, you just lacked opportunity. And there's, there's this picture of this church of these Christians who are just eager for opportunity to care for people. What a great picture. What a way to live. In a culture that's just eager to receive and gain and hold and, and, and achieve for my own selfish gain, here's a picture of a church who was so welled up with care that they were just ready and waiting for any opportunity. What a way to go into your day, by the way. Lord, give me your heart and open up doors of opportunity to just care. And it might not always be financial. Right? Think of Peter and John at the, in, in the, uh, Acts chapter 3, uh, where there's that man laid at the temple, and he's looking at them for something material, and they say, silver and gold I don't have, but I, I care for you enough to be able to give you what God has given me, even if it's something spiritual. What a, what a beautiful, um, even like a really cool way for Paul to commend you. So this is what Paul says to them. He's like, I'm in jail, I was in need, and you came and saved the day. I am so blessed by you and your heart for me. Now, there's an interesting turn that this takes in verse 11. This is where Paul is just so deep and spiritual that he almost seems weird. Okay? I'm not sure if you've been there as well when you're reading Paul. Like, how, is, that, is this sincere? Does this guy really mean this? So Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need. Now, let's just stop there. What? Paul, you're in prison. Paul... You have no resources in and of yourself. You are speaking in regard to need. Isn't this an interesting thing? He's like, thank you so much, man. I was almost at the point of death. It can almost sound like offensive. Like I was about to die of starvation and you brought me food. Thank you, but I wasn't even in need. It's like, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, it's like, here I am. If you need anything else, you know, just, just 800 miles away. But, um, it's interesting. Not that I speak in regard to him. Now, why, what is Paul saying here? Now, what, what Paul is speaking about is his state of being, his inward state of being. Certainly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, objectively, Paul was in a circumstantial state of physical need. But he's able to say this about his circumstance. He's able to say that in regards to his circumstance, though he was circumstantially in need, he wasn't lacking anything on the inside. He wasn't like empty in life because of his circumstance. He says, and here's why, because I've learned something. He says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The reason why Paul in his time of need could say I have no need is because he went to the school of contentment. He says, I've learned in whatever state, whatever's going on around me, to possess a heart of contentment, to be content. Now, here's a little definition for this word that Paul uses here that describes his ability to 
be in need without being in need. Uh, contentment. This word means to possess an inward joy, strength, and satisfaction that is fully exempt from all outward circumstances is what's at the bottom there. I don't think it's formatted. Uh, it's, the formatting is a little off. So the bottom two words here should be outward. Just be content with what I have. Okay, this is the best I got. All right. To possess an inward joy, strength, and satisfaction that is fully exempt from all outward circumstances. Uh, and that's what we see Paul describing. He, he's saying that in my life, I have learned, notice what he goes on to say, whatever state I am circumstantially is the idea. Whatever state I'm in, I've learned how to have strength and joy. Um, notice what he says, I know how to be abased. That means to have nothing, to be uh, you know, at the bottom. Like starting at the bottom, you're still there. That's like the idea there. He's like, I'm at the bottom and I'm, there's no way up. I'm, I'm empty. There's a low supply. And he says, and I know how to abound. I know to be low and I know how to also overflow. This is something I think a lot of people miss, that contentment doesn't just apply to when you're lacking. Paul says contentment is also to be learned when you're having, when you're overflowing. We tend to think of greedy people, or rather we think of content people as those who are like, be okay with not having anything at all. But some of the wealthiest people in this world are some of the most discontent in the world, <laughs> that itch for more. Got to have another. Got to get a little bit more. More square footage. Another car. A better couch. A better husband. All right. He says, I've learned in whatever state, contentment applies to all circumstances. I know how to have nothing, and I know how to abound. And Paul is actually speaking this from personal experience. Paul comes from an abundant background. He was a part of likely a wealthy Jewish family. And he's gone from riches to rags. And he says, in all those situations, I've learned the secret, he says, of contentment. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul has learned contentment. He said, I've run low and I've overflowed, but what I have or don't have, Paul says, I can say that I'm not in need, even though you've met my need, because what I have or don't have isn't the source of my satisfaction. Now, I wonder, how, um, how do you do with contentment? How would you rate this morning your contentment in regard to your season of life right now? Whether it's a season of abundance or a season of abasement, whether it's a season of plenty or lack. The question I'd ask you this morning is, are you content? Do you possess an inward strength, joy, and satisfaction that is fully exempt and independent of outward circumstances? Um, I, I think I can kind of level with all of us here and just say this. Contentment is tricky. Maybe a better word is uh, it's elusive. I'm content one day and I'm discontent the next. Or I'm content one moment, and usually this is what happens. This is what I found Often my contentment gets disrupted by comparison. Have you noticed this? Contentment can be disrupted by comparison. Another way to say this is, I often don't know what I need until I see what you have. Right? And, we, and this is the phrase we usually do. We usually say this. 
where have you been all my life? Where has this thing been all my life, right? I've been in need, apparently, up until now, and I've seen what you have. And now that I see what you have, I'm aware suddenly of something else that I need. Need. I went over to your house, and I think of, uh, we went to dinner the other day, our family at the Steffer home. And every time I go to the Steffers, I'm just enamored with all of Rich Steffers' gadgets and gizmos. I mean, I walk around his, and it's like, I'm just coveting every turn of the corner like and I'm not talking like we're not talking like high life we're talking like the special code thing he got on Amazon on his gate I'm like baby did you see this we got to get this we need this right like all around the house you have friends like that you go over their house and you're just like I don't have much okay all right all right <laughs> comparison it disrupts contentment it creates within us there's this this struggle we have in humanity and it doesn't help that our culture is not a culture of discontentment. Our culture financially runs off discontentment. We're all victims to the game. We gotta buy in. We gotta get this. We need that next thing. It's new. It's the no, it's no, it's the new, 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 new thing, right? It's like, no, that's old. That's old new. This is new, new. Right? This is how our culture runs. And it's exasperated by our tendencies to always be, as Solomon says, grasping for wind, trying to get a substantial handful of satisfaction in a life that can't give it to us. Now, in light of this struggle that we all can agree to, that we all wrestle with to some extent of being discontent, I think it's why it's so important that we point out the fact what, what Paul says, the most important word in this verse is learned, right? Um, Paul says, I, I, I don't have an instinct. It's not natural for me to be content. It's a skill I've had to learn. This, is, this must be accepted. You and I will never be, contentment by, uh, be content by default. We won't trip and fall our way into a contented life. It's a school we have to go to. Even the Apostle Paul says, I've learned it. I, I've become a student of contentment, which is, of course, what we all are. Uh, we're all disciples of Jesus. This is, by the way, what Jesus invites you and I into. Being a Christian doesn't mean I attend church on Sunday. It means I follow Jesus, and I'm seeking to learn his way of life and trading it out for any other way of, way of life, trading it out for culture's way of life, and I'm trading it out for even my own tendency and way of life. I'm saying Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. And here's what Jesus says to his followers. He says to all of us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find the rest that you're looking for, that you're grasping for in that next promotion, that next achievement. See Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2 and just look at King Solomon's own journey with life under the sun, trying to find the rest, trying to find the satisfaction that Jesus alone promises now, he promises it to us, but it's not a magic wave of the wand. You're a Christian now, contentment. No, no, he says, you'll find it as you follow me and learn from me. As you apprentice under my way, allow me to teach you contentment. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples contentment. Jesus teaches us to be content. He says things like, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat what you'll wear, know that your Father in heaven is going to take care of you. Don't seek the things of this world like the Gentiles do. You're not, a, you're not just a, a child of this world and culture. You're a child of God who's going to be provided for. Your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask him for it. 
Seek first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. And everything else will fall into place. God will take care of what you need when you prioritize him. This is what Jesus taught his disciples, this skill that we don't have instinctively but need to develop. Um, And it's also what Paul, we see him talking about it, but it's what he teaches Timothy. I'm going to read you these long verses in 1 Timothy. Look at what Paul says about it. Uh, In that day and age in in the church, there were these men who were um, leading people astray, using the Bible to say false things. Things okay, just because it has a scripture verse doesn't mean that it's communicating the right message. Best example of this is Satan tempting Jesus to jump off the temple with a Bible verse. I love that when someone's like, Well, it says this in the Bible, it's like, Well, you got to read the whole thing, right? And today we have every other Instagram post, and this, that, or the other is some new thought, some new perspective. And Paul's like, You got to be careful for how people are going to use the Christian faith and hijack that thing for something other than Jesus. We're all vulnerable to this in our own versions, whether it's political, whether it's moral. There's so many different versions of this. And Paul warns Timothy against this. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise than the teaching of God's word and does not consent to wholesome words, which is God's word, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, godly lifestyle should flow out of whatever theology we're getting from God's word, If if our theology is leading us to ungodliness and worldliness, it's not of the Lord. So he's like, here's a great litmus test. Does the theology promote godliness? And he goes, if someone's not promoting this, here's what he says. Kind of calls him right out. Paul is not afraid. He's like, he is proud. I love this. Knowing nothing. Love the guy. But is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Now, here's the root issue of their theology. They suppose, back to contentment, that godliness is a means of gain. People who, Paul said, are going to teach this way. And he says, from such, withdraw yourself. Stay away from people that come to you and say, let me, let me teach you about how Jesus can get you what you really want. What are you looking for in life? Have you tried Jesus? You've tried that religion. You've tried that pathway. But what's the material blessing that you're searching for? Now, certainly, we have a principle here that Jesus is the one whom we're ultimately looking for for satisfaction. But there's a hijack to that that Paul says you got to watch out for, where people, they kind of present Jesus as a good thing, but as a means to some other greater thing. So godliness is a way to gain things. Like, and some of us, we live with this anti-gospel lifestyle still that we think, you know, God is going to bless me when I start behaving better. Once I start behaving better, it says it in Deuteronomy, in the Old Covenant, that if I obey and I do the right things, then everything is going to be fine for me. The problem is reality and the Bible. and Ecclesiastes, where Solomon's like, look at the righteous. Why are they suffering? The equation's not lining up, and people still sell this stuff today usually for their own means of financial gain. And so Paul is saying, don't look at the Christian faith as a means to something else. That's greed in your heart. He says, instead, notice what he says. This is a beautiful statement. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Isn't that amazing? It's not a means to gain. A godly lifestyle with the spirit of contentment. Have you ever met someone like that? Like, they don't need much more. 
They just love the Lord. They love, they're thankful for their salvation, and they're seeking to live for him. And they're like more happy than anyone else you've ever met. What a simple, beautiful life. Godliness with contentment. Not a means to a gain, but gain in and of itself. Because it's a spiritual wealth. It's beautiful. He says, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certainly we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, he says, with these, we shall be content. He goes on to tell Timothy. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is, the root of all, is a root of all kinds of evil for which some having strayed from their faith and their greediness have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then he says to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So as Paul is instructing Timothy into a life of contentment in Christ, he's saying also of himself here in Philippians that he has learned this lesson. He has become a student of the school of contentment in life. And what's amazing about the usage of this phrase here in verse, 15, uh, verse 12, this is verse 11 and 12 up here. In verse 11, he just simply uses the word, I have learned contentment. I've become a student of it. I've developed the skill of it. I know how to do it. In the second half of that section, Paul says, I have learned, and in the Greek, it's a word of being um, initiated into the mysteries of some sort of ideology. Some of your Bibles might say that Paul writes, I have learned the secret to be content. Uh, the picture there was Paul was kind of ripping from pagan religions of the day, kind of like Scientology before Scientology, that were like, if you buy now, you will get all the mysteries of whatever, you know, like, and it's kind of like this ladder system where like the more you give, the more you show loyalty, the more enlightened you become, and you get to the point where like, I'm up here, I'm like this level, whatever, Tom Cruise or something, like I'm here. And, and that's this real, it's a demonic belief system that's, that's centuries old, millennials old. And, and Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying, I, I have, I'm just kind of hijacking that idea, and he's saying, in my own life, I have learned the secret. He's kind of using that language. Now, what's amazing about Paul's secret, which, by the way, that's, I mean, if you're learning from someone trying to develop a skill, if you ever had to learn something before, like, you know, I'm teaching Judah all the different, trying to, all the different board sports that uh, I developed uh, mediocre skills in as um, a young man, not as a 33-year-old, to tell you that much. But, um, and just recently, the Wilsons, they, they donated Judah a beautiful skimboard. So we were at the beach yesterday. There was no waves. So Judah was trying to you know, use the skimboard. And that's a hard one to teach him because I can't show him without dying. And I'm not going <laughs> to To my death, I will never be on a skimboard again, okay? And if I was, the, the phrase, to my death, is applicable there, okay? Um, but just kind of like, and, and, and you know, just him trying to do it on his own, he's learning, but such a big part of it is little secrets, right? Little, little trick tips that I've developed along the way about how to throw the board and, and seeing him kind of develop this. And Paul's like, listen, I, I want to teach you the way of contentment. And, and part of developing this skill is getting around someone who has learned it. By the way, that's a great thing to do. If you've ever met someone that's embodied this, what a great question to ask someone who has walked with Jesus for some time. Like, what's the secret to your relationship with Jesus? Not that it's like not in the Bible, like, you know, what did they leave out that you found out? You know, it's not like that. But more like, what, have, what has God revealed to you as something so central? And that's what Paul is saying here when he says, here's the secret. Paul says boldly, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's Paul's secret. 
Are you learning the skill of contentment? Okay, well, what's, what's a trick tip that you could give me, Paul? Here's the tip. Jesus. Jesus, Paul says, is the source of my contentment. The, the language there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, uh, the word strengthens means to put power in. This is really interesting. Um, Paul says, the power I have in my life, my power, my joy, just simply power, my battery pack of life, it doesn't come from what I have. A lot of us, we, maybe we can't say the same thing. For a lot of us, what we've lost was our power. And what we've gained is our power. It's our strength. And Paul says, I don't trust in the things of this world that are constantly changing. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who puts power in me. My strength comes from Jesus. Contrary to popular um, misinterpretation, this is not a verse for how you can do everything and anything impossible by just naming and claiming and blabbing and grabbing the name of Jesus. Okay? I didn't study for my test. I can do all things through strength. There's no sign that she's interested in me. But I can do all things through Christ. Right? What, what this verse means is even when she denies your advances and your, your, your date proposal, even when she, or even when you fail the test, you say, I can do all things through Christ. It's not my successes or my failures. It's not my gains or my losses in life that determine my power and my strength. But it's Jesus. And I just want to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not someone that has found a better way to obey kind of a, a better set of rules. A Christian is someone who's like, I found Jesus for all that he is in a real way. I'm not a religious person. I'm just like a Jesus person. He is so satisfied and strengthened and sustained and, and become sufficient for me enough in life to say to have him is to have everything I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I, God, in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. How awesome would it be to get here? He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. You could fill in there. My bank account, my relationships, my, my successes, my achievements may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength because he is the source of my strength and not anything else. Amen? So there's this contentment. Now, now Paul, he has to give a little uh, disclaimer. So, so he, he says all that, but, it, but as they're kind of looking on going, well, all right, like, well, should we bless you next time or not? Like, we get it. You're content. Like, do you, are you ever going to be in need? Because we're here for you. So Paul wants to make sure that they're not misunderstanding. He's like, nevertheless, despite the fact that I'm content, despite what happens. He says, you have done well, I love this, in that you shared in my distress. So now Paul is kind of shifting towards their generosity toward them, toward him. And, and one thing that he says about the way that they've come alongside him, we're going to see they're the only church, out of all the churches that could have supported Paul, there was only one single church to come along Paul's side in his time of need, and it was the church that lacked the most resources. Generosity is not always tied to how much you have at the bank account. It's a posture of your heart. It's a willingness to say, God, I don't have much, but what I do have, I'm going to offer it to you. It's the little boy with his little lunch saying, Jesus, I got a couple fish, a couple loaves. And, and that's what this church did. They brought Paul this offering that God multiplied and used in Paul's life in such a significant way. And, and Paul is commending them for that. He's letting them know, and, and the phrase done well, it speaks of like a, a moral act in the sight of God. Literally, done well. It's a moral act that, that pleases God. 
I want you to remember that. When you're generous and no one else is watching, God is watching. When you're doing something right, in a culture that, that doesn't ever give and seeks to gain or gives to be noticed or gives to gain something else, there's something about the heart of a Christian that says, I'm not letting my left hand know what my right hand is doing. I'm doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. I'm going to be generous to this person. If no one ever notices it except God, that's enough. But I love what Paul says when he talks about how they've helped him. Um, in verse 15, he says that they shared with him. And he uses a Greek word that describes simply coming alongside of them and like uh, someone and giving them something. You share with them, like a little food off your plate kind of an idea. All right, what, we try, what we're trying to teach our kids to do, share with each other. But the Greek word he uses here in verse 14 is intentionally different. He doesn't say that you've shared with me. He first says that you've shared in my distress. This is really important. What Paul is saying about this church is that they didn't just come alongside of Paul kind of heartlessly and just give them what he needed. But before there was generosity, there was first, first this union in their hearts toward his. They shared in his distress. They weren't the saviors with everything going fine, showing up going, here's your solution. But there was first this like unification. When, when Paul was in trouble, they felt it. It was like his trouble was their trouble. This is a great vision for what the church is intended to be. The church is intended to be a community of, in the Greek, koinonia, those who share in life together. We share in each other's celebrations and victories so that when you succeed and you get a promotion and you get pregnant and you have a baby, whatever it is, we share in that joy with you. It's not just your joy. That's my joy, too. We're one body. And the same is true of suffering. The same is true of your pain. Who's sharing in your pain? Who are you allowing? Who are you sharing your own pain with? That's what the church is intended to be. Th those who suffer together, rejoice together and weep together. Here's a, maybe here's another question. Whose pain can you share in more? Can you come alongside of them like the church did to Paul to share in their distress, to, to give them this sense that their trouble is your trouble, their pain is your pain. He says this to that church. And then he goes on to, excuse me, wrong verse there. Um, verse Philippians, uh, verse 15, he says, but now you Philippians, he says, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel is not like when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. The beginning of the gospel was when Paul planted the gospel um, in uh, the Macedonian area, in Philippi. He says, that's the beginning of the work of the gospel. It's a cool way to think about a church plan. I like, I'm going to start saying that about Solus. You know, when you come in, you're new, I'm going to say, you know, now in the beginning of the gospel here at Solus, I'm going to start using that. I like that. So Paul's saying in the beginning of our church plant, when I first came, he says, when I departed from Macedonia, Paul recollects a time in his life, even before this time when they took care of him. He says, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you said aid once again for my necessities. This is beautiful, man. This is a generous church. Um, it's important to point out that like contentment comes first and then generosity. When you're content and you're not living to grab the next thing, you are available for God to use you. Generosity and discontentment, they, they can't really coexist in the same heart. But contentment that says, God, all that I have is a gift from you and what I have in you is more than enough. It sees what I have as a means to bless other people. And so this content church is free to be a generous church. 
And that's what Paul's affirming in them. When no other church came by his side concerning giving and receiving, he said, you were the ones that showed up. In fact, imagine, this would be cool. Imagine this achievement. You're so generous that Paul writes about you to another church in one of his letters. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. You know, there's some churches in the Bible that Paul has to write to and, like, teach them about giving, like, teach them about um, bringing their first fruits to the Lord. Philippians is a church where he's just like, good job. I have no teaching here about giving. You're, you're doing well. Good job. But, but to the church at Corinth, Paul had to instruct them a little bit about generosity. And he uses the church at Philippi as an example. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, I, I like the, how the NIV uh, communicates it. He says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. So that, that, that first and foremost is amazing. That the generosity that the Philippians show is evidence of grace in their lives. He says, in the, very, in the midst of a very severe trial... Paul says, look at this sentence. He says, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What an equation. For me, I usually, I would read it like this. Overflowing joy and extreme wealthiness welled up in rich generosity. But he's like, no, no, all they needed in the equation to be uh, richly generous was overflowing joy. They were like just eager to take whatever they had to serve the Lord and to, and to bless Paul. And it welled up in rich generosity. Paul says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urge, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And this is a, a key verse here. He says, and they exceeded our expectations. And here's the makeup of a generous person. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves and all that they had. Here's the key to generosity. It's not what you do, but it's who you are. You start and you say, God, all I am and all I have is yours. When you can say that, then by the will of God, God, where do you want me then to spend my resources? This doesn't mean go, you know, go, go for broke, ruin your family because you're like, I'm generous. Take it easy, okay? Sorry, kids. You know, no college, right? Like, no. Leave a legacy. Be a good steward. This is not about the... The uh, fine print of generosity. He says that's up to the will of God. You've got to seek the will of God. But, but listen, you can't begin to discern God's will for how you're supposed to use your resources and your money if you don't belong to him first. If you don't give yourself to him first. If you are still living under the illusion that what you have is yours and not his. Right? Then there's, there's no starting point. Because what if God did say, hey, give 90% of it. Whoa, Lord, the 10% belongs to you. Remember? And that's interesting. You know, even, even in the Old Testament when Israel was commanded to tithe, the 10%, it's never used of the 10%, uh, the, the tithe, the first fruits. The word is never used that they gave. Like, here, God, our gift to you. The word is always used, they brought. Like, God, I'm bringing what belongs to you. It's like if I let you borrow my car and then you showed up a week later, you're like, here, Andrew, I'm going to give you your car. It's like, thanks, I paid for it, right? Um, no, you're bringing it. You're returning what belongs to the Lord. And if that was the standard for the Old Testament, Paul's saying to the New Testament church, when it comes to your life of generosity, you surrender first to the Lord and then you say, God, what, what do you want me to generously give? What's your will? Who are you leading me to bless? Where are you leading me to sow? Now, now, Paul has to clarify that though he's affirming them in Corinthians and Philippi, he wants them to know that the reason why he's commending them, this is important, especially in church, whenever you talk about money, 
because of how much corruption there has been. Paul's like, I don't seek the gift. He's like, I want you to know this, okay? We don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need what belongs to him, okay? I want you to know that Paul's like, I'm not encouraging a life of generosity for my sake. He's like, I'm encouraging it for your sake. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I want you to be blessed. That's Paul's heart. He's encouraging them to give for the sake of their own soul and also for the sake of their heavenly account. He says, when you give, the fruit abounds to your account. He goes, I'm not seeking something from you. And we know that's hard to trust in in the church today. Most church growth strategies could really be summed up to how do I get more bodies and bucks? Bodies in the building, bucks in the account. How do we get bigger and richer? And, you know, I feel like we could do better in the sense of every week someone's like, hey, where's your tithe box? <laughs> I don't know where, oh, it's like hidden over there in that little box, okay? So like there's a sense in which I need to care more about your souls and encouraging you to give unto the Lord. But I know that there's a lot of distrust for a lot of us when it comes to the motives of ministry, when it comes to the uses of finances and ministry. I get that. And Paul's like, listen, I'm not like those that are shepherding for dishonest gain, my heart for you, and I would say solace, my heart for you, however God in his will would lead you to be generous to solace church, I pray that it would first come out of this place where you say, I belong to God. And then secondly, out of this place where you say, I just want to do his will. And I would say like Paul, from the very beginning, we knew this, that we didn't need people's money, that God was going to provide everything we needed. And one of the reasons why we, like, this hasn't been a church, someone said to me like a couple months ago, they were like, why don't you ever teach on like giving more to the church? And I really generally feel this way. This is my response. I feel like, for the most part, Solus is like the Philippian church. I really feel that way. I don't have this rebuke, like, and I don't know the exact percentage. It's good for me to stay out of some of that. But I don't know the exact percentage of how many of you are and how many of you aren't. But I know, for the most part, God has given us more than what we've needed. He's provided for us. And when I look on at our church, I say, we're a generous church. I'm really thankful to see how God is going to reward you for your generosity to him. And this is what Paul is speaking to. He's speaking towards the rewards of, of giving and generosity, the fruit that comes. Um, there's this idea that Paul is speaking about that when you give unto the Lord, you're investing in a heavenly account. And it's a stock that you can trust in. It's never going to go down. It's not, the market won't crash in heaven, okay? It's really simple to understand, Siri, okay? Um, that was awesome. <laughs> Look at this quote by Charles. See the culture? Just constantly discontent, right? All right. Spurgeon has this beautiful quote. He says, no man is the poorer for having given unto God. I love that. Jesus promises, give and it will be given to you. What a, what a beautiful promise. No man is the poorer for having given to God. God is, God is never in the place of a debtor. Like, oh, I'll pay you back if I come up with it. We'll see. The Lord is never in that place. He's always faithful to his children. Paul says this as we kind of close out here. He says, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. Paul is now expressing his gratitude for the generosity. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God. So, so this is the same kind of idea. Paul's like, listen, here's what I'm seeking in your generosity to the Lord. 
When it comes to giving to the work of the ministry, Paul's like, first of all, I'm not after your money. I don't need your money. I'm content in Christ. What I'm after is your joy. What I'm after is your heavenly account that you're investing in. What I'm after is, is you living a life that's truly blessed, which is defined not by what you gain, but by what you give away. And then he says, and more so, I'm for the fact that God is pleased with your generosity. That's just beautiful. What a motive to want to give, especially in secret. God, I just want to give to you. When no one's looking, I want to honor you because I know that you're watching. Uh, Paul expounds on this in 2 Corinthians. He says, let each one of us, when it comes to the church, like if, if people have asked us, like, what should we give here at Solus? Like, this is my home church, and, and I want to invest in the ministry here. I want to give to the Lord and the work of the kingdom. You know, what's the percent? What's the number? It's like, listen, Paul says, tells us here in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each of you give as he purposes in your heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. And here's what we're after. God loves a cheerful giver. Give whatever is worship to the Lord for you. Give whatever is in line with the will of God for you. Paul is affirming that in this church. God loves that. It's amazing. You know, scripture gives us a lot of things that God hates. And, and we should be aware of those, right? Like, what doesn't God like? I want to stay away from that. I want to avoid that. But we should also be actively pursuing the things that God loves. He loves a cheerful giver whose motive is simply worship. Now, the final promise that Paul closes, I'll invite the band out as we wrap up here, is Philippians 4.19. This incredible promise, and my God, he's speaking to those who are living generously, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul is essentially saying here that the generous life is not a reckless life. It's the most secure life that you can give because you are living as one trusting in the Father's provision. You're living by faith in the fact that all that you have and all that you need is going to be provided for by the one who has it all. I love this. He shall supply all your needs according to his riches. Maybe someone just needs this applied to the situation they're in right now. And it goes back to last week. Be anxious for nothing. Why? For my God shall supply all your need. Jesus taught this. He said, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will wear. We talked about that. He says, but trust that your father knows. Your father's going to take care of you. The person living generously is not going to be left empty. God promises a life of provision and abundance. This is what he calls us into. Beholding God is Jehovah Jireh. And maybe you're saying, okay, I, I like that and I want to accept that, but can you point to some evidence where God is faithful to that? What, I mean, I'm going through something hard, Andrew. I need more than a verse. I need more than just your word for it, that God's going to provide for what he knows I need. What example do you have? Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let me remind you for a second about the greatest need you've ever had. Back to our beginning question. When was the last time you were truly in need? Truly in need? Well, the human condition is in need. Our patterns and addictions to sin problems are, are in need. Our tendency towards self-righteousness and trying to be good enough for God is in need. Our situation of being stuck separate from God because of our sin 
is in need. And Paul reminds us that God did not spare his own son, but he generously, for God so loved, what a cheerful giver God is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish in need, but have everlasting life, have every need you could ever desire in life met ultimately in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel. It's a good news of God's provision. It's good news that though we were in need through Jesus, our needs are met. I'd ask you this morning, have you had that need met? You know, you need to be reconciled to God. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need it. More than you need that promotion, more than you need that next thing, you need to be right with God. It's what you most desperately need. And Jesus has provided for that? Have you received his sacrifice? Have you received the gift of his grace? And if not, you, you can do that today. You can open up your heart before you leave here. All this is simply calling out to him. He, here's the sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, just show mercy on me. And then you behold the cross. You see what God did for you. You trust in Jesus. You take your eyes off yourself. You trust in Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the greatest need there, the need of overcoming death, eternal life. If you believe that, you will be saved, the Bible says. Saved. Right now and for all of eternity. So our prayer is that you would be saved, that you would trust in Jesus, and that in your life you would find that when you have him, You have everything you need. You don't need to worry because you can do all things through Jesus. Amen.